This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. On social media, it has become common for evangelical Christians to identify themselves as imputationalist. This is interesting because the doctrine of imputation, the teaching that our sins are reckoned to Christ and His righteousness is credited to believers, was an essential part of the Reformation. In recent years, however, it has lost favor in various quarters for various reasons, such that evangelicals who still believe it feel compelled to identify themselves with this new moniker. John Fesco is academic dean and professor of historical and systematic theology at Westminster Seminary, California. He's just published a new book on this very topic, Death in Adam, Life in Christ, The Doctrine of Imputation. This volume with other faculty titles is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, John, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hey, Scott. It's great to be here with you. So, a new book on imputation. Let's define our terms. What is imputation? Generally speaking, it is to credit something to somebody else. And uh, we could say it, say, for example, in accounting, if you return something to the store, then we can credit your account with a specific amount, the value of whatever it is that you return. In theological terminology, it's the idea that we see Paul speak of, for example, in Romans chapter 4, when he uses the Greek word legizomai, which gets translated variously in terms of account in the old King James, impute or to accredit. Or reckon. Or reckon. Yeah, that's another one. So that it speaks of the idea that Christ's obedience is accredited to the believer so that when God looks upon the believer, he only sees the perfect obedience of Christ. The Old Testament word, the Hebrew word in Genesis 15, 6, frequently gets translated to think or to reckon. Mm-hmm. If you look at the other instances in the Hebrew Bible after Genesis 15, 6, you can translate several of them anyway as reckoning. Mm-hmm. Genesis 38, 15 says, when Judah saw her, he reckoned her a prostitute. Correct. Which is interesting. So well, that gives us a sense of this idea of imputation. And you mentioned right away, or you appealed right away to the category of of accounting. Mm-hmm. So this is business yes. language. Yes. Could also be legal language. That's right. Absolutely. So this raises the question of the sphere of discourse that we are in, which is in some ways a way of thinking and talking that is somewhat out of favor, it seems. Mm-hmm. It seems as if people are more interested in relationships now than they are in legal categories. Yeah, I think it's a, a rather strange thing because in one sense, I suppose I could see how somebody might say, well, why are you emphasizing these legal, you know, concepts, these ideas? They don't seem very warm or, you know, relational. relational. But one of the things I always try to do is point out that relationships have many, many different facets. You know, so quite commonly we say that, well, marriage obviously has all sorts of facets to it. It has romantic facets. It has relational facets. But one of the relational aspects to the marriage is the legal component. It's that you have to stand before either a representative of the state or a minister and make a legal declaration that you are going to take the other person as your beloved wife or conversely as your beloved husband, whatever. And it's the idea that uh, there's a legal dimension to it. So I'm not quite sure why people want to wash that out when in many respects it's such a common part of our existence and our common part of uh, life in general. There are lots of criminals, believe it or not, who have a good, in a sense, 
in a weird sense, working relationship with the police. They know the cops who arrest them, mm-hmm. and they have a kind of convivial relationship. Right. I just heard a story the other day about a fellow who has had three consecutive encounters with a police officer, and they now know each other by name and face, <laughs> and uh, they have a kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. But, of course, they also have a legal aspect to their relationship. Yes. So it's not just personal. So it's not as if you have one, you don't have the other. Yeah. As you say, the marriage analogy is very good. On page 18, you give a brief definition. And on page 273, mm-hmm. we're talking with John Fesco about his new book, Death and Adam, Life in Christ. You write of a threefold imputation, whereby God immediately imputes the guilt of Adam's sin to all people, the sins of of the elect to Christ mm-hmm. and Christ's alien righteousness to the elect. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a loaded, compact description. Mm-hmm. Walk us through those three parts. And first, tell us why is it important to have all three? I think that uh, it's important for us to recognize what Paul lays out, for example, in Romans chapter 5 or 1 Corinthians 15 verses 20 through 28. And it's the idea that there are two representatives in the scope of pre-redemptive and redemptive history, and that's Adam and it's Christ, who in 1 Corinthians 15, 45 and following, he calls the last Adam. So we can call these the two Adams, if you will. And it's the idea that they stand as the universal representatives. The one is the universal representative for all human beings. Christ, the last Adam, is the universal representative for the church or for the elect, if we can put it that way. And it's the idea that their actions are representative for the people whom they represent. And so in Adam's case, it's the idea that when he sins, he sins not just for himself, but as the representative for all human beings. And so when Paul says, for example, as in Adam, all die, well, then this is the idea that it is his sin that gets accredited to all of his descendants. And when we say, or when I say that it's accredited or imputed immediately, that means it's a legal declaration. It doesn't require any kind of mechanism. It doesn't require that it be passed down through generation as, you know, some sort of contaminant within the person. So that's the first part of the threefold imputation. And we'll come back to that whole question of immediate versus immediate imputation. Right, yeah. So that's the first part. The second part is, is that when Christ comes as the last Adam, our sins get imputed or accredited to him. He carries the burden. Not only does he carry the burden, he pays the penalty. Even though he himself is perfectly sinless, he is treated as if he had violated the law when in fact he did not, but he willingly bears that penalty. And so our sin gets imputed to him. But then on the flip side of the coin, his perfect law keeping or his righteousness gets imputed to us. And so that uh, the way that Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so that he who knew no sin became sin. Those are the two sides of that coin. And so that's the second and third part of that threefold imputation. Adam's sin to us, our sins to Christ, and Christ's righteousness to us. As you were giving the account of the three Mm -hmm. aspects of imputation, Mm -hmm. you, in passing, alluded to a couple of things, one of which is Adam's federal headship Mm -hmm. and Christ's federal headship. Mm -hmm. This is an ancient idea. We Mm -hmm. think it's a biblical idea, Mm -hmm. but it's not an idea that everyone accepts. Mm -hmm. How important is this idea and why do you think it's so necessary that we believe that Adam acted on our behalf? And as the colonial Puritans used to say, in Adam's fall sinned we all, and that Christ acted on behalf of his elect. 
Yeah, I think it's difficult for us at this particular point in Western history to embrace the idea because we are such proponents as a culture of radical individualism, the idea that, hey, I cannot be held accountable in any shape or form for anything that anybody else does. I'm my own master, so to speak. And some theologians object to that very thing. Right. We'll come back to that. Yeah. But as you said, it's an ancient idea in that uh, it's the idea that every one of us is bound either to Adam or to Christ. The way that the Bible talks about this is it talks about it in terms of our covenantal bond with Adam or our covenantal bond with Christ. And we know of this in a much looser form, say, for example, in our federal form of government. We're a republic. We're a representative republic, at least on paper. <laughs> you know, how it works out in reality, that's another story. But the idea is, is that there are elected officials who represent us in the halls of power in Washington, D.C., so we don't all march up there and try to make the decisions. Rather, these people act on our behalf. And we're obligated yes. to what they do, even exactly. if we don't like it, That's even right. if it's unpleasant. And we get the good with the bad. That's right. And so, you know, we could try to have a mass democracy of 300 million people, mm -hmm. but that probably wouldn't work. No. <laughs> they, they tried it in Athens and <laughs> right. it didn't exactly work. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So we live with the consequences of a representative federal relationship mm -hmm. all the time. We use this word federal way. We have a federal government, mm -hmm. which means a delegated mm -hmm. government with right. certain uh, delegated powers. Right. Absolutely. And so Adam acted on our behalf and we are responsible, even though we didn't ourselves personally, consciously, actively do these things, right. yet we're legally related to him. And we think naturally also biologically mm -hmm. related mm -hmm. to him. Yes. And in modern times, we've tended sometimes to emphasize the legal over the sort of natural physical mm -hmm. relationship, but both are true. And typically, isn't it the case that we're happier to accept what Christ did for us? Right. So sometimes people will say, well, yes, Jesus acted on my behalf and everything he did is credited to me. I like that. Mm -hmm. But I'm not so comfortable with accepting what Adam did for me. Right. No, you're absolutely right. I think that we like to focus on the good and, and not on the bad. But, uh, you know, the illustration that I commonly use is that, you know, if somebody marries a wealthy person, well, they not only acquire the wealth of that person by virtue of the marriage, that now they're legally united as one person and therefore the one person has access to the funds of the other. Conversely, if the one person brings significant debt into the relationship, well, that means that the other person inherits or gets that debt because they are now, again, one legal entity. So there's a mutual exchange, if you will, of the good and the bad. And so that's just one illustration. It obviously breaks down at multiple points as we get into the biblical text, but it hopefully conveys something of the idea. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And it's not as if this idea of imputation and federal headship isn't in Scripture. So right. we want to be clear that you're not just making this stuff up as right. a sort of clever theological construct that you like right. and then sort of imposing that on people. Sure. This is an idea that comes right out of Scripture. The Apostle Paul calls our Lord the last Adam mm -hmm. in 1 Corinthians 15.45. And then there's Romans 5, 12 through 21, mm -hmm. wherein Paul explicitly Right. sets up this two-atom structure in which he analyzes, in effect, all of redemptive history under these two heads, the first Adam and the last Adam, who the first Adam fell, and in him we all sinned, and the last Adam obeyed, and mm -hmm. in him all those who are elect, who come to faith, who give a new life, those receive his benefits. Absolutely, yeah. As is the man of dust, so shall those who have his image, you know, be of the dust. And then as of those who are of the man of heaven, so they'll bear his image, as Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 15, 45 and following. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's all over the Bible. 
We're talking to John Fesco about his new book, Death in Adam, Life in Christ, and you're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. The notion of imputation seems clearly revealed in Scripture. I think you and I agree about that. What are some of the reasons that people struggle with this? For example, you note that Oliver Crisp objects to this idea because, in his view, quoting here, God alone is responsible for bringing about what appears to be a deeply immoral and unjust arrangement, whereby all those who come after Adam are culpable and punishable for his primal sin, a sin that they did not commit and did not authorize a representative to commit either. He labels this the arbitrary divine will objection. And Chris identifies as a Reformed theologian, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You know, it's like, on the one hand, I understand the objection. I think it's a very common one. And what he does is he states the common objection in a little bit more technical language, and uh, it's presented very clearly. Uh, You know, if I were to present the simplified version of that, it's like, hey, I wasn't there. I can't be blamed. I wasn't in the garden. I didn't sin. So why am I held accountable for this? And that's where I'm quick to point out the flip side of the coin, which is, well, we weren't at Calvary either. We didn't suffer on the cross either. You know, how can we say that uh, we receive the blessing but not the consequences of sin? And I think that the way some people would say is they would say, well, I authorize Christ as now as my representative to act on my behalf. But yet, again, when you look in the scriptures, you know, say, for example, Ephesians 1, it says, no, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So in other words, we technically don't authorize Christ as our representative. It's God who appoints Christ to be our representative as well. And you were dead in sins and trespasses. And Paul says, while we were yet sinners, Mm -hmm. Christ died for us. So there was no authorizing by rebellious sinners who are spiritually dead of Christ. He did it despite our demerits, despite our depravity, despite our rebellion. Absolutely. And it's important to recognize that we do respond in faith, but it's always with the caveat that he loved us first so that we might love him. It's not as it would be in a misunderstanding of it to say, well, we love him first, therefore he loves us. And because we loved him and authorized him to be our representative, therefore we do have this, you know, giving of permission, if you will. That's not the case at all. So I I find the objection common. I find the objection understandable, but in my opinion, I find the objection unsustainable when you compare it with numerous places that we could appeal to in the scriptures, such as, as we said before here, Ephesians chapter 1 or Ephesians chapter 2, at least to name just two. One of the authors with whom you interact is N.T. Wright, Mm -hmm. and you engage the self-described new perspective on Paul Mm -hmm. approach. Mm -hmm. What does the NPP do to the doctrine of imputation? Yeah, there's a sense in which they say that uh, it's basically unnecessary because what happens is that supposedly union with Christ gives you everything that imputation would. Okay, well, uh, what do we mean by union with Christ? And how is that defined? I think that that's one of the biggest problems with the new perspective on Paul is that union with Christ is a very ambiguous term. It's a kind of a catch-all dump truck that they throw everything into it. And uh, you want to say, well, what does it mean? Because at least in the older Reformed theology, and it's stuff that we love here at the seminary, you love it as well, is that they began to distinguish the statements. Because, for example, there is no statement in Scripture that says union with Christ. But we read all of these various statements that say we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world, or in him there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the older theologians would distinguish to say, well, there's a predestinarian union, the union of the decree. There is a union of applied soteriology that occurs through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
So, sure, we get everything in our union with Christ, but that doesn't mean, therefore, that we wash out the important distinctions that we see in the text. And in particular, we'll say when in Romans 8, 1, when Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, you can gloss that to say there is now justification for those who are in Christ. What does that justification mean? What is included in that justification? So that we can say that, well, wait a minute, Paul here talks about imputation, and in particular, he does it in Romans 4. Now, what I find really problematic about right exegesis of Romans 4, and you can see this in his Romans commentary, is he says, yes, Paul does invoke the bookkeeping metaphor here, but it's a minor sidelight. <laughs> you know, it's, yes, it's in the Bible, but we're not going to pay a lot of attention to right. it. Right. It's only something that post-Reformation theologians overemphasized and exaggerated at the expense of fidelity to the text. And I want to say, you know, Paul really hammers that point quite regularly in the fourth chapter. And uh, then he arguably continues to hammer that point in the fifth chapter when he says that, uh, you know, through the one man's obedience, many were constituted righteous. Through the one man's disobedience, many were constituted sinners. You know, so it's this idea that Paul really emphasizes significantly mentioning, you know, the term logizomai. I think it's some 16 times in Romans chapter 4. And then conversely, he's also emphasizing, I think it's 11 times, terms for faith or belief, so that if there was something that he's trying to prove and trying to hammer, it's impute, 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 faith, 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 believe, believe, believe. And so I really find in the end, you know, N.T. Wright's objections to the doctrine, I think, uh, you know, misguided and not really in conformity with the text. It seems like prejudice mm -hmm. more than exegesis. For example, you know, just do a quick search of your English translation, for and they don't all use the same terms. So you Correct. might have to look for reckon mm -hmm. or impute or credit. Mm -hmm. all right, there's a variety of terms you may have to look for depending on what translation you're using. But in Leviticus 17.4... Scripture says, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and he shall be cut off mm -hmm. from among his people. In Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed Yahweh, and it mm -hmm. was credited, imputed to him for righteousness. And Paul picks up on this language from Leviticus and this language from Genesis. So he's not just making things up. right? And it's not a minor biblical theme. I mean, one of the major acts of the Israelite religion was for the priest to put his hands mm -hmm. on a goat. Right. And to do what? Yeah, to confess the sins of the nation over the goat, which in a sense transferred the sins of the nation from the nation to the goat, and the goat carried them away. That's all about imputation. Right. right? That goat wasn't inherently, intrinsically, mm -hmm. personally right, <laughs> guilty. Yeah. That goat hadn't violated the, as the rabbis counted, 613 yep. commandments. Right. He's a goat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, goats are stubborn and they do a lot. They have faults. Yeah. But I don't think a goat is guilty of murder. Right. Or adultery. Yeah. Or idolatry. Yeah. Or lust. Or lust. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, you know, I guess we could speculate, but <laughs> we right. won't go there today. Right. So the whole act makes no sense yeah. apart from this legal framework. Yeah. This is nothing other than a ritual imputation. Yeah. And that whole framework is in the background of the New Testament reflection on the ministry, work, death, and resurrection of Jesus, right? 
Absolutely. I think that's one of the things I try to point out in the book is that when you look to the contemporary discussions about imputation, particularly as people engage the new perspective on Paul and its various representatives, it's the idea that the battlefield is a very narrow sliver of Pauline material. You know, they're looking at Romans 4, 5, maybe. They're looking at 2 Corinthians 5. And then for the most part, that is usually about it. You know, the field gets narrowed not from the accepted Pauline corpus, but to the supposed undisputed Pauline corpus. And so you lose the pastoral epistles, for example. And then I always want to ask the question, where is the Old Testament in all of this? And why is it that when we discuss this, we're allowing the critics of the doctrine to set the terms of the debate instead of saying, wait a minute, let's consult the entirety of Scripture? Because Paul let's say, and use the moniker as a first century theologian, his Bible, as Richard Hayes would say, is the Old Testament. So if this is the case, either Paul is making this stuff up, like you said before, or he's reflecting upon these Old Testament texts and he's connecting them to Christ. And in this particular case, as you said with Leviticus 16, it's the goat that carries away the sin. And that count, when you get a scholar like Jacob Milgram, who carries no brief for the Reformed faith, acknowledging that there's an imputation there, then that should make us stand up and take notice that this isn't just a Reformed kind of thing or a Protestant kind of thing or a Lutheran kind of thing, if you can get testimony to the truthfulness of this from a non-believer. But then secondly, I think, in this respect, is that this is what lies behind Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 and Leviticus 16 are joined at the hip, except the big difference here, as you well know, is that it's not a goat that bears the sin anymore. It's the Messiah. It's Jesus. It's the lamb, the the spotless lamb. Right, absolutely. And in that particular context, and I try to trace some of this out in the book, is the idea that not only is now Jesus bearing the sin, but the prophet Isaiah says that he will make many to be accounted righteous. And the fact that he uses imputation language, talks about sin bearing, these are all categories that pop up in Romans 4 and 5, as well as in 2 Corinthians 5. So that if, you know, we were to paint a mental picture, Paul would have Isaiah 53 and his prophet scroll rolled open, and he would probably have the Torah scroll rolled open if it wasn't already memorized completely in his mind to these passages like Leviticus 16, Isaiah 53, when he starts writing about imputation. For us as Christians, especially those who actually believe the Reformers got it right, it was nothing short of the recovery of the gospel out of the darkness of the Middle Ages. Mike Horton for Westminster Seminary, California. There's nothing more important than getting the gospel right and getting the gospel out. Judged by those terms, the Reformation was the greatest recovery of Christianity and missionary expansion in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul. The Reformation is important to Westminster Seminary, California, because we purport to be trying to make experts in the Bible. Scripture is our focus here. At the center of the biblical message from Genesis to Revelation is God's redemption of sinners in Christ, the gospel. The Reformation not only clarified that message, but also was a flowering of biblical scholarship. Westminster takes the Reformation seriously only because it takes the scriptures seriously. And the Reformation was one of the greatest recoveries of scripture in the history of the church. We are reformed not because we want to belong to a tribe, but because we believe that this is actually the riches of scripture for the whole church. And it's not something that we possess, but something that possesses us. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. 
We're talking to John Fesco. You're listening to Office Hours, and we're discussing his new book, Death in Adam, Life in Christ. You're not the first person to talk about the doctrine of imputation. It's been a Christian doctrine for a very long time in a variety of ways. It became particularly important in the Reformation Mm -hmm. because the medieval church had come to think about our standing before God chiefly Mm -hmm. in what is known as realistic Mm -hmm. categories. That Mm -hmm. is, as I tell my students, God says what he says because you are what you are Mm -hmm. intrinsically. Mm -hmm. And The Protestant reformers figured out, A, that's not biblical, and B, that isn't going to work. Mm -hmm. Walk us through that briefly. Yeah, I think one of the pieces of the puzzle comes in, for example, in that the medieval church, as exegetically minded as they could be, they were still nevertheless largely interacting with the Latin text. So that's like kissing your bride through the veil. You know, she's there, but at the same time, there's a veil in the way so that when the reformers look at the Hebrew and they look at the Greek, they begin comparing the terminology. They recognize, hey, wait a minute, this isn't realistic language. This is legal language. This is forensic language. It's declarative language. I think secondly, then that uh, there's some philosophical developments that come along the way in terms of looking at the world and that is a thing really what it is because that's what it is or is a thing just have a name to which we call it? And, you know, in technical terms, it's nominalism versus realism. Those are some very deep waters. But the long story short is that with Martin Luther, as these philosophical discussions come around, I think he begins to realize, wait a minute, there's more than one way to look at this. So I think there were some philosophical discussions that opened up some minds to some other things. But then there's exegetical arguments that come to the fore so that they realize, yeah, wait a minute, this is legal forensic language. This is not talking about God making us righteous, but rather this is about God declaring us righteous. So the Reformers and then consequently the Reformed churches and the Lutheran churches all confess Mm -hmm. formally in their confessional documents, in their catechisms, in these ecclesiastical documents, Mm -hmm. this doctrine of imputation. Mm -hmm. So this is not just a theological construct that you might find interesting or that I might find interesting. This is considered a basic enough Christian doctrine Mm -hmm. that it's in our catechisms and confessions. Absolutely. You know, in one sense, I don't want to completely identify it with the gospel because the gospel is a bit broader than that. But at the same time, they recover the Pauline doctrine, not only of justification, but one of its key pillars, which is imputation. This idea of the representative obedience or disobedience of the first and last Adam. So yeah, and so that it makes it into the various Reformed confessions and catechisms because they wanted to ensure that over and against Rome, they affirmed these biblical truths and could distinguish the Reformed and Protestant churches from the Roman Catholic claims. Not everybody, however, even within the Protestant world, accepted these things without question. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned and you have a discussion in your book. We're talking with John Fesco about his new book, Death and Adam, Life in Christ. You discuss Andreas Osiander, Mm -hmm. who was a Lutheran theologian who in Königsberg in the early 1550s publicly announced that we are right with God on the basis not of the imputed righteousness of Christ, but on the basis of our union with him and his indwelling within us, Mm -hmm. which was a clever, um, I might say diabolically (laughs) clever way of talking because it sounded Protestant and it seemed biblical, but Calvin explodes at this and Mm -hmm. writes a long refutation in the Institutes, maybe the longest response that he added to the Institutes over the decades. Walk us through that a little bit. 
Yeah, as you said, uh, Osiander, in many respects, retained the traditional terminology, but he filled it with some different ideas. And in particular, it's the idea that we have our union with Christ, which, okay, we all affirm. But what did he mean by that? Well, he meant that there was essentially a commingling of Christ's essence with our essence. And when we say union with Christ, we never say that we merge with Jesus in terms of his being. It's a close relationship. It's a mystical relationship. In other words, it defies explanation in many respects, but that doesn't mean that we become Christ with Christ. In other words, there was a phrase or saying in the uh, 17th century that said, uh, you're godded with God and Christed with Christ. And the Reformed Church has rejected that idea. Union is one thing, becoming Christ is another. And so he said that not only did we become merged with Christ, but because we became merged with him, we shared in his essential righteousness. That is, not his righteousness, not his obedience that he performs as a human being, as the God-man, but rather as that which is proper to his divine essence. He went back to being categories yes. rather than the legal categories. Right. And as you can well imagine, that's pretty troubling. It's problematic. And in fact, it's, as you said, diabolical. And I think that's why the Lutherans and the Reformed and most of just about any sane person, you know, said, no, we reject that. And so those rejections end up in various forms in the Lutheran Formula Concord or later on in the Reformed Confession, such as the Westminster Standards, for example. But uh, yeah, they soundly reject it because they say, no, this is a bad idea. This is an anti-scriptural idea. And then Rome is not happy with this, and they explicitly addressed this at the Council of Trent, which is still binding Roman dogma, right? Correct, yes. And what does Rome say exactly about imputation? How do they respond? I mean, because there is this language in Scripture, and they know this. It's not like they are ignorant. And it's not as if Rome doesn't have a kind of imputation, right? They right. traditionally have had a doctrine of congruent merit, mm -hmm. which involves a kind of imputation. It's not Christ's righteousness imputed to us, but it's God imputing perfection to our best efforts. Right. So when we say, well, no, Christ's righteousness is credited to us, what does Rome say about that? Yeah, you know, this is one of the things I really wanted to investigate as much as possible. And obviously, there's more research that could be done. But what I ended up doing is digging into essentially what amounts to some of the minutes of the Council of Trent. Because what happens is, as they've seen this stuff in the literature, Protestant theologians will interact with the declarations of Trent. And that, in one sense, is fine. That's good. And, you know, and for the most part, I think the Protestant analysis of the declarations of Trent are accurate. You know, they reject and condemn the doctrine of imputation. But one of the things that's always bothered me is that some of my colleagues would say, well, I wonder how well they actually understood the doctrine, because when you look at the declarations of Trent, they seem a little ambiguous at times, not exactly sure how specific they could have been, etc. And so I was able to dig into the minutes, and I found this speech by a Jesuit theologian by the name of Diego Lanez, probably a gentleman that few have heard of. And in fact, getting a hold of this speech was a challenge in and of itself, but nevertheless, got a hold of it. And what happened? at Trent in one of the opening sessions, because this was one of the first subjects that they engaged at Trent, is that the whole uh, Protestant doctrine of justification, is that Diego Lanez gets up on the floor of the assembly, so to speak, or of Trent at the council, and there were some people that were somewhat sympathetic to Luther. Cardinal Serapondo was one of them, for example, and they were some that were willing to kind of look at slightly favorably at an idea of imputation. And so Lanyes was very concerned. From scribbled notes and largely from memory, he gave a three-hour speech against imputation. And in this speech, it is, I think, crystal clear 
that he knew exactly what the Protestants were teaching. I think in particular, though he doesn't mention him by name, it's Luther who's in the crosshairs, which I also think is important historical information for the claims that a Luther didn't believe in imputation. They knew he did. And uh, Lanyas specifically makes this one statement that, in my opinion, brings the whole issue into relief, into clarity, a moment of clarity, is that one of the chief reasons why he rejects it, and he lists some, I think, nine different reasons as to why he rejects it, is he says, where there is imputed merit, there is no room for personal merit. And when I read that, I said, thank you, Lord, (laughs) because it is a clear reason and rationale as to why they reject it. Long story short, what they're saying is if we're saved exclusively by the merit of Christ or by his imputed obedience, then there's no room for us and our own obedience to somehow assist in securing of our salvation. And to me, that was the clearest statement. I was so happy to find that and include that in the book so that after his speech, the council unanimously rejected the doctrine of imputation and its condemnations and, you know, and disapprobation, of course, then appeared in the, the proceedings of Trent in the sixth session, as we now famously, you know, have it in various sources like Philip Schaff or what have you. So, yeah, they rejected it and they knew really explicitly what it was that they were rejecting and sadly condemning. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. We're talking to John Fesco about his new book, Death and Adam, Life in Christ talking about the doctrine of imputation. There were other Protestants who were not entirely satisfied with the doctrine of imputation as it was worked out in the 16th century. Johannes Piscator, Piscator, Mm -hmm. uh, son-in-law of Caspar Olivianus, rejected the doctrine of the imputation of Christ's active obedience for potentially some of the same reasons that Rome had problems with imputation. Mm -hmm. What does that mean to reject the imputation of Christ's active obedience? We could do a whole episode on that, but but give it to us in 30 seconds. Yeah, uh, yeah, quick (laughs) thumbnail. No pressure, yeah. yeah. The rejection of the imputation of the active obedience of Christ means that you only receive the payment for the penalty of sin and that there's no payment or there is no perfect law keeping that you receive through imputation. The idea behind it is, is again, in a sense, very similar to Lanyas's objection, is that, wait a minute, if I receive Christ's obedience to the law, then there's nothing for me to do. And it's like, well, no, I think you've misunderstood the nature of our redemption because our good works don't show up in the register of salvation, if you will. As the Heidelberg Catechism would characterize it, it's a manifestation of thankfulness and gratitude, not in any way trying to secure our redemption. So Piscator rejected the idea. There were a small, noisy minority that also embraced that idea at the Westminster Assembly. But uh, the vast majority report is, is that they rejected Piscator's rejection of the imputed active obedience of Christ. So if you see somebody dividing the obedience of Christ into chronological categories, mm-hmm. so that everything he did up to the cross was for himself mm-hmm. to qualify himself, and then everything he did, let's say from the point of his arrest mm-hmm. forward, is for you, mm-hmm. then you know that person is perhaps implicitly mm-hmm. anyway denying the imputation of active obedience. But that doesn't really account for the nature of law, does it? I mean, you not only have to not break the law, you have to positively obey it. And even after the penalty has been paid, you still have to keep obeying the law. So we need that positive righteousness that Christ accomplished, we would say, I think, not for himself, but for us. Right. 
which is perhaps why Paul says that Christ was born under the law yeah. for us. All right, well, that's imputation of active obedience. Again, the reader will want to go and look at this uh, volume for himself. Earlier, I asked about uh, immediate versus immediate imputation. Mm-hmm. This is another issue that John Fesco addresses in his new volume, Death in Adam, Life in Christ. What is the difference between immediate and immediate imputation? This one, I think, is in one sense, it's a challenging subject, but let me see if I can break it down in the following two ways. One is that theologians in the church believe that either God declares us guilty of Adam's sin, or when he declares us guilty, he uses a mechanism. And that mechanism is that we pass sin on like a disease from one generation to the next. The way that we can illustrate that, I think, is very simple with the following phrase. Or I can ask the question, are we sinners? because we're guilty or are we guilty because we're sinners when we're talking about the question of immediate or immediate imputation. And I think that we have to look at the biblical text. And long story short, when Paul talks about imputation in Romans 5, he says, because of the disobedience of the one man, many were constituted sinners. It's important that he uses a Greek term there, kathistemi, which is essentially, it's a legal term. And Paul doesn't have in view here the passing on of guilt or sin through the mechanism of procreation or through reproduction. These are basically legal standings so that we are either constituted as righteous or constituted as sinners. And if you want to say that, well, no, there's a mechanism here, it's through procreation, well, then you'd have to explain how that's the case with Christians and Christ's righteousness. Why would you switch the definition of that term in such tight quarters when they're used, you know, in parallel fashion like that? So you set up a kind of asymmetry between our justification and our relationship to Adam, which is problematic. So finally— We've waded through some pretty deep waters, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. historical, exegetical, Mm -hmm. theological, but there's always the practical. Mm -hmm. As you have been working through this question of imputation, and you obviously believed in it before you started writing the book, but what was the effect of working on this and producing this volume on imputation? How did that affect you personally? Yeah, I think that it's so important for us to recognize there's an illustration that I think that Calvin gives that for me really sums it up in terms of its practical benefits. And it's one of my favorite illustrations from Calvin. And he says that when Jacob sought to receive the blessing of his father that was due to his older brother, he went and put on his brother's older coat and, you know, got dirty and and got smelly so that he smelled like Esau. And his mother helped him by cooking up some game. And Calvin says uh, he sought to deceive his father that he might receive his blessing. He says, what a contrast and what a world of difference it is that Christ freely gives us his coat that we might enter into the presence of our heavenly father to receive the blessing. If there's one thing that the doctrine of imputation teaches us, it's not what my hands have done, O Lord, but what you have given me through your son. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.